0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Love in Basketball podcast. I'm your host, Adam Gearlock. As always, thank you so much for being here, and I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. The Love in Basketball podcast explores servant leadership on and off the court, seeking a fuller picture and deeper understandings of this vision for leadership that holds people and results together. Today's episode is a conversation with Frank Alaco Sr., Executive Senior Athletic Director for External Relations at the University of San Francisco. Coach Alaco is perhaps more well known for his high school basketball coaching career at Northgate High School and De La Salle High School in Northern California. Coach Alaco is second all time in state history in winning percentage, and his team's won 20 games a season for 24 consecutive seasons. Coach Alaco is also the only coach in California state history to win a state championship at two different schools. Beyond his success on the court, Coach Alaco also leaves behind a legacy of thousands of lives positively impacted as the founder and camp director of the Excel in Basketball Summer Camps, which, since 1981, have served as a teaching camp for basketball skills and so much more for thousands of youngsters in California and in New Jersey. I found this to be a conversation filled with wisdom, Coach Alaco highlights that self-knowledge often allows us to cultivate larger purpose in work and life that helps move towards greater definitions of success and service to others. He also explores cultivating a shared vision and the power of elevating and valuing others as a reflection of their inherent importance. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coach Alaco, this is a very special conversation for me. The Excel in basketball camps growing up in Northern California was where I learned so many things beyond just the game. Uh, competing, toughness, resilience, just to name a few. And I also ask each guest who they might recommend for the podcast as someone who they believe embodies servant leadership. And you immediately came to mind for one of our previous guests. Upon reflecting that someone else believes you to be a servant leader, what comes to mind for you? Uh, and what about that might be valuable, uh, or important for you?
1: Well, I, I, I think, you know, uh, any affirmation is a positive thing, right? So to hear that, you know, you had an impact on someone that felt that way, just to hear your own introduction, you know, I remember you very well at camp, you know, and I remember your growth, you know, as a, as a player, as a person with your, you know, the way you competed and you sort of were the embodiment of what, of what, uh, you know, we, we tried to preach and to hear others acknowledge what you're doing. Because I think sometimes that, you know, you get the the coach player relationship takes many, many different forms, you know, from very negative forms, which we just saw one with a youth coach, you know, where we see that, that view of this authoritarian leadership where, you know, you do what I tell you and then that's the the way to do it. Or, Or you, or you see one where it really, towards to get into a person's soul, right? And you become a piece of the fiber of them, you know, and to me, that's really what is so cool about coaching and about being a servant leader is that, you know, you instill a little bit of yourself into others. I can tell you that, you know, you mentioned the camp with Excel. You know, I've always said that Excel has been so ridiculously popular for 40 years, right? It's been sold out every year for like 40 years. And I always say that the reason Excel was successful um, because it was created with the right vision. Hmm. Right. Uh, And I always say that, you know, um, that the success of any venture will be determined by the spirit in which it was entered. So I don't even know if you remember the story, Adam, but, I got into Excel because there was a coach who had an enormous impact impact on me when I was 15 years old. I was at a basketball camp, and, and I was probably the best player in the camp. And this coach came in who was recruiting from Tennessee, Stu Aberdeen. And Coach Aberdeen, you know, uh, came in, and he gave us incredible speech, to like 240 guys, you know, and said, um, who's the best player in this camp? You know, and he went through this whole thing and he, he asked me to stand up and he said, how good are you? Top 200. You know, why would I give you a scholarship? I have I have four scholarships to give. Why you? And uh, he said, where do you see yourself? Are you top 50, top 100. And I remember I gave him an answer like top 500 because I wanted to be, uh, didn't want to come across as too cocky or conceited. And I said, you know, top five. He looked at me, he goes, you're not top five. I can tell by looking at you you know, you're not, you're not that good. Right. And, and, but he, he said, he talked about this premise that we're all of created equal, but friend from, from there, how do you get an edge? Hmm. You know, and I say, obviously some of us are created with different skills and others, and some are blessed with intelligence. I'm not one of them and others have other skills that you have, but basically no one jumps 20 feet, right? We all are in the parameters of our humanness, but how do you separate yourself? How do you get better? And, and he talked about this concept of the winning edge. And the winning edge was working harder than people, you know, living the right way. You know, he, at that time, he was talking about don't use foul language, you know, are you doing drugs? Are you, are you drinking? You know, are you studying? Are you kind to your mother and father? You know, are you a good teammate? And he kept saying all these things. He said, every time you say yes to that, you separate yourself and you elevate yourself to a higher level. And when I get to that final guy, you know, say there's 2000 guys I'm recruiting and I want a kid that's, you know, doesn't use foul language. Now I'm down to a thousand. I want somebody who doesn't drink. Now I'm down to 400. Now I'm down to, you know, cut it. I want a guy that practices two hours a day. I'm down to, you know, hundred. Now I want somebody who respects your parents. I'm down to five, you know, and, and this, and, and I really struck a chord with me at that age. And, and I really tried to adopt that lifestyle. And, and he was such a huge influencer in my life. And, and I was reading the newspaper, and I always think that you know, like you and I talked a little about this earlier about the current knows where it's going, that things just happen that are supposed to happen. Hmm. I got on a plane, I was flying to Hawaii for a business trip. I picked up the San Francisco Chronicle, which I normally don't read, but that particular day, I picked up a paper and I read the sports section, and there was a a little paragraph on Stu Aberdeen saying that he had passed away he was the head coach at Marshall University he Had a massive heart attack he was just 49 years old I was devastated by it and I uh, would called my wife and she knew because I was she was my girlfriend at that you know when we were in high school and so she knew Stu Aberdeen's effect and I said Stu Aberdeen died you know I was devastated and I said and he got a paragraph this amazing man just got a little paragraph and And that night I went to bed and I swear I dreamt this camp, you know, right down to the logo. And I called my brother, Jerry, who was an incredible high school coach in New Jersey. And I said, Jerry, I'm going to start a basketball camp. And he said, you're not even coaching. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I'm coaching CYO basketball at the time, you know, and, and, um, I said, I'm going to create a camp. And the whole theme of the camp is to going to keep coach Aberdeen's words alive you know i'm going to keep him alive i'm going to give him my little bit of immortality by naming an award after him and talking about him at camp once a week and and get kids to know his story and uh and i really do believe that that's why the camp has been great it's never been a financial thing it's never been a business to me it's a ministry you know it's something that you know i want to continue the word of an amazing man who touched me so when you talk about servant leadership you know Stu Aberdeen's story with me really does resonate because his his word is now being instilled through me. And to hear you say that you know you got so much out of the camp and the person that recommended me to do your podcast that means a lot to me because the word just continues to grow. You know, and maybe you're going to share it with somebody. And uh, I remember when I first started coaching CYO, I said a kid one day said, "Why do you do this?" I said, "You want to know why I do this? One day I want you to be sitting at your dinner table when your child comes home and says, "I have the best." CYO coach ever. And you said, no, I did. Hmm. I may be long gone, but my star will twinkle that, you know, I was remembered just for a brief moment that you had a fond memory of the relationship and the mentoring that I tried to provide for you in our experience. In
0: hearing you tell this story about the, the spirit or the vision uh, from which uh, Excel was founded, I'm, I'm hearing that potentially one of the impacts of servant leadership are these ripples across time. Uh, went from Stu Aberdeen to you, you to uh, myself, and also you to the the, the previous guests who who mentioned you specifically. Um, that might stand in contrast to the authoritarian leader that you highlighted earlier. Right. What might be the difference of the impacts of the authoritarian leader as opposed to the the servant leader?
1: Well, you know, I, I think when you really, when you really look at it, the, it it all goes back to, why are you doing what you do? Hmm. You know, why, why are you doing what you do? I mean, I think that's, that's the first principle. I mean, in the old days people went into coaching because they had a real desire to teach. I remember uh, Dick DeBaiso who was my freshman coach at Notre Dame. Uh, I had two amazing freshman coaches at Notre Dame, Dick DeBaiso and Frank McLaughlin. Frank went on to be the AD at uh, Fordham head coach at Harvard. I mean, I, and, Dick went on to be the head coach at Stanford, he had amazing people. I don't know, freshman coaches, you know, it was pretty cool. I was the last, we were the last group that didn't, couldn't play varsity, right? The mm-hmm. last year was, was my, my freshman year. And I flew on a plane one time with Dick. He was going up to watch his son play basketball, I think up in Oregon. And, and he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I don't know. You know, he said, do you want to be a college coach? And I said, I don't know. He's, you know, thought crossed my mind. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, the lower level you coach, the more impact you have on kids hmm. because it changes the higher you go. When you get to the collegiate level, you got to win. You know, there's pressure on you to win, you know, and you know, you were in the college game. There's a lot of college coaches that graduated every student they've ever had. They've done amazing things, but they didn't win, you know, and, and, and you have to win. So I think, you know, when you look at that and in, in the old days, you went into coaching, they were paid nothing. Right. So you'd be a you'd be in, uh, you know, a senior in college. You go, well, I can go be a stockbroker and make, you know, at that time, one hundred thousand dollars, you know, or I can go into coaching and make eighteen thousand dollars. And people that chose that route really had a passion for the game. You know, I remember talking to John Cheney at Temple about that. He said I had to take swimming lessons to get a PE credential, to be able to make $10,000 to coach. Mm. You know, and, and, and nowadays it's different. You know, it's a very lucrative business. So guys roll the dice thinking this is a profession where, you know, I think that's the difference to me. It's not a profession, it's a ministry. Mm. You know, and when it becomes a ministry, the success just seems to follow in it. You know, so that's, that's what I think. And the first step in the servant leadership is, is what, why are you doing what you do and how do you define what you do? You know, do you look at an insurance salesperson? You know, do you say, well, I sell insurance for living," Or do you say, I put people in financial security to be able to enjoy their families and provide for a legacy and for generations of, you know, it's all in the definition of what you do. And I think you have to have that self-definition in your mind, the choice of why you are doing what you do. And to me, there's nothing better than working with kids because you have that ability to impact and, and, and change their lives. Uh, and it's so pure, the lower level you go, like coach DeBiso said, it really is true. The lower level you go, the more impact that you have on kids. Uh, I, I remember watching Frank, my son, you know, was an outstanding know, player at St. Mary's college at Northgate high school. And today runs an incredible, you know, I'm so proud of him. He runs an incredible AAU program, you know, ASA prime. And, and he teaches what we teach. Uh, but I remember, when he first started playing athletics, I remember it like it was yesterday. I took him into his room and he was putting on his uniform to go play soccer. He was probably five years old, five or six. And he was putting on that uniform. And I remember walking into the bedroom and saying, today is one of the most special days of your life because today you get to be a part of something bigger than you. You get to be on a team. And I said, when you put that uniform on, You really are giving up a little bit of yourself. You're becoming a, you know, part of a group. And I said, and you're always going to be a great athlete. You're always going to be one of the better guys on a team. So with that comes responsibility. You know, you have a responsibility that you can't let people down. And Mm -hmm. there may be a choice someday where you say, I had a birthday party I want to go to, or I got a game. And, you know, you may want to go to that birthday party, you know, but do you have an obligation to your teammates? Because you're a good player. If you're not there, they're probably not going to win. So, you know, and and I I always instilled that in him that it's not about you, it's about them. You know, it's Hmm. about how do you serve others? How do you make them better? And I have to tell you that, you know, he he, I'm so proud of him and what he's doing because he is the embodiment of that. He teaches that, he preaches it, he lives it. And I can remember his last game at Northgate High School, won the state championship as a junior, right? We had a phenomenal team that year. We won the state. The next year, everyone graduated. He had no starters coming back. And we had moved up a division, and we got to the state championship game where we played uh, Dominguez, and we lost uh, pretty handily. Actually, they beat us pretty good. They had a really good team. They were number three in the country, I believe. And I remember him walking off the court, and a TV crew, uh, you know, grabbed him, and I, I, I wanted to try to put a stop to it. I, you know, I couldn't control the situation. I was at mm-hmm. center court, and I walked over, and I all of a sudden I see a microphone in his face you know and then i knew he was upset about losing right and the reporter said to him what does it feel like you know after winning the state to lose your last game and he responded with i'm just disappointed that i let my friends down you know they've always come through for them and tonight i didn't you know and he said i really am disappointed that i didn't provide them with a better experience you know I, i i should have played better for them you know and i heard that and i was so proud that even in a moment like that it really wasn't about him it was about about the team. And here was a kid that had a great game I and mean, he played fantastic in that game. You know, he certainly uh, was not the reason we lost. We lost because we played a superior opponent period, mm. <laughs> you know, but I liked the fact that he owned it, you know, and, and, and it really wasn't about him. It wasn't about the score. It was about his disappointment that he could have done better or should have done better. And I think that gets back to certain leadership. It's just not the coach, it's the team too. You know, it's your players when they embrace that, it, it takes the competition to a whole different level. Hmm. Makes it almost sacred, you know, and, and and Adam, we used to say that a lot. You know, I would say to the kids, anybody can say anything, but a sacred vow is different. You know, I often look at the signers of the Declaration of Independence. You know, they pledged their, their, um, their fortunes, you know, their lives, and their sacred honor. I think the use of the word sacred was very important. Hmm. Because it elevates it to a different level. You know, when you talk about a vow like that, that's really not just words. It's, it's a promise. It's a commitment. It has a more spiritual core to it, right? And I think that's what really elevates coaches, players, and teams. When it becomes more than a game, it becomes a crusade. Hmm. You
0: highlighted earlier profession uh, as opposed to ministry. The word sacred and crusade are are coming up here. And perhaps what might be associated with those things are some sort of greater purpose. Um, What what happens? What shifts with this crusade um, when it's a ministry with this sacred element? um, What happens? What shifts with this sacredness um,
1: intact? It changes everything. It changes the definition of success. Hmm. Right, because now you're looking at. I know when I was younger. And by the way, you know, for any coaches that listen to this, you know, it's a process, right? You grow in this. I'm a much better coach, you know, as an older person than I was as a younger person. I had a different philosophy. I'm a much better person, you know, than I was 20 years ago. Sometimes when we're young, we we don't understand the value of experience. I didn't, Hmm. and I just think there's just a natural experience as you get as you as you go through and have different experiences in your life, you internalize them and you, you learn, you know, what, what part of that, you know, makes you grow and and, and makes you a lot better. And I think, you know, as you're, as you migrate into your definition of what is successful and what is not, um, I used to judge it by wins and losses. You know, I would lose a game and get on the, you know, I wouldn't be able to talk to anybody for a week, you know, and, uh, and, 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 I got past that as I got older, when I realized that the score doesn't define me. It does if it's, if it's my uh, profession, you know, if, it's, if I'm being judged that way. But if it's a ministry, it truly is. What experience did I provide kids? What did we learn from it? What, what did the adversity teach us? Sometimes there's an honor. I, I remember telling my grandson this, that sometimes I used to like losing, you know, as a player. Because I'm going to play harder than anybody on that court for the last 10 minutes, even though we're down 20. You know I'm not. There's no. There's no time to quit. You know I'm going to give my best energy and best effort. And so you walk away thinking you did that. I know at Northgate and De La Salle, when the kids left the court, the last thing I would usually put on the backboard was "Be the greatest competitor they've ever seen." Hmm. That has nothing to do with winning or losing. It has to do with your effort. I said, challenge yourself that when you leave and someone gets in their car tonight, they say. That Adam is the greatest competitor I've ever seen. That number 22, I have never seen a kid play that hard. You know, and I think that's what you really want to gauge it by. It's not necessarily the wins or losses. And, you know, the first thing a kid hears, one of the reasons basketball is such a difficult game to coach. And it's, you know, the, the, the parent's perceptions. first thing they ask you, how many points did you score? Hmm. Well, it isn't about points. It's about loose balls. It's about, did you make a play for your friends? Some of the greatest plays. Greg St. Jean, you know, coach with the Lakers. You know, Greg's an amazing guy. One of the greatest plays I've ever seen was him, you know, saving an out-of-bounds play and calling a timeout before he landed. It was one of the greatest plays I've ever seen in history. And I always tell Greg, he won the NorCal championship for us. He did. It was an amazing – it was a North Coast section championship game. And he won that game for us. He was a superstar in that game. He scored zero points that night. Zero. But he made a play to this day. I will never forget was one of the greatest plays I've ever seen a kid play. But I also think on the other end of the spectrum, you have to have coaches that recognize that too. Some Mm -hmm. coaches don't recognize that that kid's a great defender or the chemistry is better when he's on the court. You know, I played with Joe Montana, you know, Joe Montana, you would never notice Joe Montana's arm. If you came to a practice, Joe Montana never would have seen the field at Notre Dame. Right, because he wasn't a practice player. He did not look good in practice. He did not have a he didn't have a cannon, you know. But what did he have? Heart, you know. He had that soul. He had that ability to elevate the people that were around him, you know. And a common cause. And at the end of the game, there's nobody you wanted in there more than him, because now those he didn't have a gun, but man, he had he had the touch. He put the ball where it needed to put, and there was nobody better than him in a pressure situation you know, and, and so, um, I think a coach has to recognize that, hmm. right. I and mean, he sat on the bench for a long time without an opportunity before some injuries gave him the opportunity to play. And then once he got the opportunity, it was pretty special. So I think the players or the business people, people on your team at your work have to understand, you know, what it is and how they define success. And you have to have a coach that's that sees the specialness that, um, uh, you know, it may not be the flashy guy. It's just the guy that's going to give you their best effort and do whatever you need them to do.
0: Yeah. So what, what might the servant leader um, or what might the the coach in this instance uh, keep at the forefront of their mind um, as they're trying to identify some of these different elements than the, than the flashiness?
1: Well, you know, there's an identification part of it. And there's also... Um, There's also the, the, you know, Adam, I want to go backwards for a second. Is that okay? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So my son, Frank, played soccer uh, for a year or two. And the reason he stopped playing soccer is uh, during a game, uh, I'll be honest with you, I would go to his soccer games and sometimes I would have a headphone listening to Notre Dame football games as he played, Hmm. right? So I was not totally engaged in it, I have to admit. Um, I was multitasking. And I remember that his team got scored on and the coach was a, a very big guy he was a very imposing man right and he started yelling at the goalie for allowing the goal and the goalie had allowed two or three goals and he started screaming at this this kid you know saying how could you do that you know and and i got to tell you my blood started to boil right and hmm. he kept yelling at this kid across the field right and then the kid came off the field and he's like you know he's up here and he's down there and he's how could you do this you know and you walked away and my wife kind of grabbed my hand because she knew I was getting upset. Right. And, and I finally say, hey, coach, I know why he keeps doing that. He's six years old. And the coach yelled at me. He said, you know, oh, you your typical little league parent? sit there and criticize I said, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just telling you that kid is six years old. And he, well, you need to stay out of it. I said, no, I said, you need to understand that you have the most important job in the world. Because you can turn that kid on to athletics for the rest of his life, or you can turn him off. And I got a feeling that kid ain't going to want to play soccer too much longer. Hmm. And, and, and my son, shortly after that, gave up soccer. You know, it was not a good experience. And it's not nothing against soccer. It was about the leadership that was there that didn't make it fun, that didn't make kids feel that it's okay to make a mistake. You hmm. bounce back. It's, sort of, it's in mistakes that make us great right? It's the things that, uh, that we look in the mirror and say, I got to get better at this. And, and as a coach, direct me, help me, tell me what I got to do. I mean, you were that kind of a player that would go up to people and say, hey, what do I got to do to become great? You know, what do I have to do? Tell me what I can do to become a better player. Or, you know, coach, tell me what I did wrong in that game. You know, and I think that's that interaction and, and communication is such a huge part of certain leadership. You know, how do you communicate with kids? How do you get them to understand? Uh, what you're trying to get them to do. And I think that's really a, a, a most important part of it. You know, when I think of that, you know, a couple i things I'd, I'd run by. One is I think servant leaders have to listen. Hmm. You have to be a listener. You have to understand your team and you have to, you have to be willing to take input from them and and make it more of a group thing. It's not, I used to always tell the kids this at the end of the game, Hey, this is your call. You've put a lot into this. I'm coming back next year. You're not, this is your shot. Mm. We've spent four years here. You know, I don't need to motivate you. This is your legacy. And I get a chance to win a state title 24 times, 24 years. You don't, you get Mm. one run, maybe two runs at it. You know, and and what are you willing to do? So, I think they have to understand. You have to listen to where they're coming from and adapt. Secondly, I think you have to care. You know, you have to care about the kids. I think if kids know, or even adults, if people know you care about them, they'll run through a wall for you. You know, I think you have to really let them feel that you have that empathy for them, that, you know, you're in that situation, that you really do care about those. And I'll tell you, Adam, when you talk about, you know, people growing and changing in their lives. I'll tell you what had happened for me. When I had a grandkid, my granddaughter, Molly, who I dearly adore, you know, when Molly was born 13 years ago, I started to approach kids different and realize that every child is the most important person in the world to somebody Mm. and they need to be treated as such. Mm don't need to be belittled they don't need to be put down they need to be elevated because they're important and they may be driving you crazy because they're not getting a loose ball or you know and and, and you know and, and and i think you know sometimes when you talk about that that caring of it let them know they care but then also listening is a two-way street you know i i love these coaches that, that will yell i've told you that a thousand times yeah you know, we've heard this all the time And why does the coach say that? Because he wants the fans and everybody around him to know, I've coached that. He's just not getting it. Hmm. And when I hear somebody say, I've told you that a thousand times, I want to say, and coach, obviously, you haven't hit the right chord yet. (laughs) Because if you told him a thousand times, he's not getting it, right? The communication end of it. So a third component of that is that communication. You know, the, the way you're communicating, it isn't working. And I often say this to parents when I do motivational speeches that if your kid isn't doing what you need him to do, it's not their fault. We're mm. doing what a 15-year-old does. <laughs> You're supposed to be the one that changes that behavior. So I think that's what we have to do in coaching, right? Along those lines, I think you have to share your vision. You know, it's, uh, do they understand what we really are trying to do? Are we trying to win a championship or are we trying to grow? You know, one of Mm -hmm. the things that I always emphasize with our kids is we were disciples of the right way to do things. We weren't going to recruit. One of the proudest things, if you ask me what I'm proud of, one of the most proud things is, is, um, you know, we wanted an elite level. You know, we were a top 25 team in the country. We did not have top 25 athletes. You know, I coached maybe two you know, elite, elite, elite athletes. You know, in some of these high schools that we would play against, Oak Hill, for example, where they have, you know, five NBA guys on their team. We didn't have that. But what did we have? We had kids that shared the vision. Mm-hmm. They understood what the vision was. They understood how we were going to get there, what was going to be at the core of what we do. So I think it's important to really sell them on that. And then you guide them towards. Getting better and making great decisions, right? Hmm. When people are invested in the mission, then you don't have discipline issues. I would get people ask me, "How did you get your kids so disciplined? How did you get them to play hard?" Well, it was easy. It wasn't my thing. It was their thing. Hmm. We never got kids in trouble at school because they knew that if I do this, coach is strict, right? I'm not. Kid can do something. You you violate the team. You're not going to play. I don't care if you're the best player or the worst player. And our kids. You know, and at first they were motivated to say, Hey, I don't want to miss a game. Then it became, I don't let my friends down. Hmm. You know, if I'm not playing, I let those guys. Down. And then I don't want to let my coach down because that's the reality of it is we got a relationship here. You no. Know? And, and, and again, part of that servant leadership is it doesn't end with the coaching of the kids. Now, if you're, if you're not a minister, if you're just going out there to win games, well, yeah, my guard's gone. Let's get a new one. Hmm. But if you're really coaching beyond the scope of the time you have, I'm coaching kids for the rest of their lives, right? I still send out motivational stuff to every kid I've ever coached. You know, this wasn't a four-year deal. This is a lifetime thing. You, I'm here. If you need me, you want me, you know, you choose the level of relationship we want to have. That's your call. But I'm going to give you my best effort and energy uh, for the rest of our, of, of, you know, of your life. So I think, you know, that again, getting back to that mission and that, that sensitivity, right, that you understand that every child is important, you know, the most important person in the world to someone, and they deserve to be uh, treated as such. I also think in the servant leadership mode is you got to evaluate yourself constantly. Mm. I think it is not just normal for someone to migrate and be someone that thinks at a higher level. Yeah. You know, you, you look today that it's a different world than when I grew up. You know, kids don't go to church. You know, we don't teach things in school that we used to teach. There's not, you look at the TV we watch. When I was a kid, every, every show I watched had a moral story at the end of it. I was just telling my uncle yesterday. <laughs> yes, just yesterday, my uncle's 80-something years old, and I said, do you remember the movie Angels with Dirty Faces? And he said, vaguely. I said, well, there was a great scene in that movie where James Cagney, Um, he was a gangster in this town, I think it was back east, and everybody looked up to him. He was this swashbuckling gangster. He had great clothes. He was a good-looking guy, and the kids admired him. And he he gets sentenced to go to the electric chair. And this priest goes up to him, and he says, I want you to do something for me. I want you to act like a coward when they execute you get out of here, father. I'm not doing that. He said, all these kids look up to you. Mm -hmm. And they might choose a a life of crime because you look so great at what you do, you know? And, and he said, you got to act like a coward. He says, I'm not doing that. And I, and I just watched this scene the other day. I clipped it actually and sent it to my my brothers. Uh, I sent the clip to him. I said, remember this great scene. And He's walking to the electric chair and the priest looks at him and nods like, and he went, I ain't doing that. Right. And then he gets to the electric chair and he starts screaming, don't kill me. I don't want to die. He's crying. Right. And he's screaming. Right. And the next day the peepers, the people say he was a coward. He was yellow. You know, back mm-hmm. then they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the term they use. It was in the paper. And so he, the priest walks into this clubhouse where all these young kids are, you know, and their teens and they go, and they were talking about him. They said, they made it up. Yeah, you know, he didn't do that, you know. And they're just trying to make him look bad. He goes, Father, you were there. What did he do? He goes, oh, he screamed and he cried, right? And uh, they, would, they, they couldn't believe it, but he said he did. He cried. He was a coward. He was afraid. He was scared, right? And it turned those kids away. And you think of, talk about servant leadership, you know, um, losing your identity, giving up everything just to save the lives of those kids. I'm getting chills telling you this, right? Hmm. It was just such an incredible scene, but kids don't see that today. So they're not learning that. So where are they going to get it from? You know, they got to get it from us. And coaching attitude is such a huge part of that. You can't assume it. I used to give a card every day to kids, you know, a little motivational card. And we would talk about the saying, or, you know, every day they got a motivational card or they got a handout on Michael Jordan or or somebody that I wanted them to learn a lesson from might be a movie clip or whatever. And we coached that every day. And Mm -hmm. in the beginning I used to think I would see one of those cards on the floor, and I would be so disappointed, and I'd say to myself, "I'm not getting it. You know, I'm not getting the message across. I got to try something different, right?" And then, and then I would go to the, the boy's graduation party, and his mother would say, "I want to show you something." I'd walk up to the kid's bedroom, and there'd be 350 motivational cards on a closet door. Hmm. I recently saw John MacArthur, one of the greatest players I've ever coached. Saw him in the city, and John, we had a great conversation at a, at a USF basketball game. And after the game, John sent me a text. He said, uh, I took me it took a picture of his closet in San Francisco with all these cards on it. Wow. Coach, I still look at these, he goes, But my favorite is the one I carry in my wallet and I look at before every sales call. On the shores of hesitation, by the countless millions of bleached bones who at the dawn of victory stopped to rest, and in resting they perished said mm-hmm. that all the time he used to give us that, give us that in March. We've come this far and now you have that choice. Are you going to rest or are you going to forge ahead, you know, and, and get the job done? And John says, before I go into a sales call, I look at that and say, you know, I've got to finish it, you know? And so there were two things that I took about that from that one, the appreciation that John got it right. Yeah. And, yeah. with John. and secondly, that he lives it isn't Hmm. just something he did because it pleased me. He wasn't reading those cards to please me. They became who he was. And so I think, you know, leadership's got to, got to move it towards that. Right. And then evaluate your program constantly. You know, I think
0: you you mentioned the evaluation of your program and the evaluation of yourself as a servant leader as well. What questions do you ask yourself uh, to evaluate yourself constantly?
1: Um, you know, the motivation for why you're doing what you do. Hmm. You know, and I think you, you really have to motivate yourself too. You know, I, I do these motivational videos. I, I started doing it during COVID. In fact, I've, I'm surprised I haven't shared those with you. Hmm. You need to be on my list because yeah. I'm doing these motivational videos and I did it during COVID. And I'll tell you how that happened. Um, I was talking to some kids about camp. We knew we weren't going to be able to conduct Excel first time in 40 years. I was talking to some kids and, and they said, I'm going to miss your stories the most. You know, I'm going to miss the stories that you tell. the mm-hmm. anecdotes. And I came home that night and I thought I can still tell stories yeah. not to be at camp. So I started doing these motivational videos and I started in March and I put out 30 of them so far That's the 20, I think I just finished number 29 yesterday and I send them to campers. I send them to coaches I send them to families. I send them to kids. I send them to friends. I try to try to send them out to people. Right. And, and I'll tell you, it's a lot of work. I generally start doing it on Tuesday night. Um, Probably start after dinner around six o'clock and I finish probably around three or four in the morning. Hmm. At four o'clock, Adam, I walk from my chair, 15 feet to my bed. And I feel like a million bucks. I feel like a million bucks. I felt like I did something that was important. Hmm. Now, 70% of the people probably don't even open the videos. That's okay. It's only going to take one or two. You know, I got a, I got a text this morning from uh, Harold Abend who's a great writer out here. Uh, and he wrote to me, probably your best ever, you know, like, Hey, somebody watched my video. That's great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I think, you know, you evaluate, you know, why you're doing, why you're doing what you're doing. And, um, is it, is it, is it reaching a chord or is it touching the way you, you want it to touch it? So I think you really do need to look at that. But again, Adam, it all goes back to the definition. You can't, you can't define, you can't evaluate yourself till you've defined yourself. Hmm. You can't evaluate yourself till you've defined yourself. Right. And so I think that's really important to define what you're about and are you living up to your, core principles. And if you are, you're moving in the right direction. If not, you've got to adjust it and make sure that it uh, is moving in the correct direction.
0: Maybe what are some of your obstacles or your challenges to moving in the direction that you've defined for yourself or moving in the direction of service to others? What are some of those obstacles and challenges that, that you face yourself?
1: You know, I want to be able to do more. You know, I'd like to have a greater reach. You know, I think there's a positive message that kids have to hear. Um, you know, so I think that that you want to do more. I always think of that, the wonderful movie Schindler's List, you know, and Schindler did so many amazing things. A true story, you know, of a man that saved so many people from execution and saved countless lives. And talk about a servant leader, right? That there's families that exist today because of that man. Mm -hmm. Think about that. There's whole generations of family that existed. I mean, uh, it just blows my mind when you really think about that. But I always think of the last scene of that movie. And here's a man that gave up everything. He risked his life, you know, uh, to defy Hitler and to find a way. He was, you know, working within the government. but He found a way to employ people, to give them jobs, to spare them right, and, and put himself at great risk in doing this and lost a lot of money in doing this because he, he, he supplied funds to people to do what they had to do. But at the end of the, of the movie, he's acknowledged for what he did. And he, he looks at his watch and he says, if I had only sold this watch, I could have saved another five. If I had sold this car, you know. And so I think that becomes a challenge for us. Is it ever good enough? You know, I've often said that, you know, my cousin Greg Alaco, terrific high school coach. And I remember one day it was me and Greg and Frankie, my son, were walking through Notre Dame. We were talking about this very topic. And I said, guys like us, we're blessed, but we're cursed. Hmm. Because it's the motivation to want to do more and be more. It keeps us going every day. But it's our disappointment in ourselves that we aren't being what we could be, or maybe doing it at the level we should. That's always, we're never satisfied, right? Yeah. You know, think of Alexander Hamilton on that great play. you never be satisfied. I think sometimes when you're driven like that, you're never going to be satisfied. because there's always another challenge. There's always more you can do. So I think for me, it's really coming to grips with that, you know, and, uh, you, you, you get your reach out and you do whatever you can. And, and sometimes there's a frustration, you know, if, if, if people aren't seeing things the way you see them and and I don't really worry about that anymore. But I know when I was younger, that used to bother me and now I realize there's a lot of different ways to look at things. My way isn't right. It's the right way for me. And all I can do is worry about me, you know, be the best version of me that I can be. And every day, make sure I'm better than the guy I was yesterday and trying to keep improve and being satisfied with that, you know, and being also comfortable in your own skin. Mm. You know, it's like, um, I think I told you this earlier, Adam, before we went online that, you know, I'll get calls during the final four. Why aren't you coaching? I am coaching. And I often say, well, you mean ego coaching? Oh, so I have to have my name in the paper or I have hmm. to define it with a win or a loss. You know, I, I don't need that. I, I define myself in kids, you know, in the, in the young people, young men and women that they grow to become. And when I hear somebody say that your camp influenced me, it's, it's, I don't know how you could ever be happier with that. I mean, you made my day today. Right. And uh, that's that's, I think, again, getting back to how do you define a win and a loss?
0: Yeah, I was I was about to ask potentially, well, how do you hold this tension between wanting to do more and like keeping it from becoming destructive um, and uh, always being in the mode of just pursuing more and more and more? And potentially what I heard from you is letting go of the ego, um, being comfortable in yourself and defining what success means and looks like for you. Yeah. Uh, was I understanding that correctly? And yeah, I mean, uh, what you might are. you want to add from that, to that? Well,
1: I, I, and I think part of that is, you know, being comfortable in you. You know, you've got to be comfortable in who you are and what you are, because you're always going to be judged from the outside. And I've often said there's no one's going to define. There's no one in the world who can define what I am. I know what I am. I know who I am. And, you know, there's going to be people. And when you're successful, there's people that don't like you. You know, there's people that love you and, uh, you're, you're always going to have that. And, uh, you know, I, I've always looked at, you know, understanding that that's people's perspective and they can have what they want to have and feel what they want to have. It's never going to change the way I feel about how I define who I am and, and what I do. And, you know, I remember, you know, writing to a a dear friend of mine and said, you know, you would never be trivialized in wins and losses, you know, to put your winning percentage up there. It's, it's not about that. There's the thousands of kids, that you made better. Think of Stu Aberdeen. How many people know Stu Aberdeen? Not too many, but I do. And I know the impact he had on me and he's one of the greatest influencers in my life. And, and I just find a little way to honor him whenever I can because he was so important and he is so important to me, but yet the world doesn't know him. I I wouldn't be the man I am without him. I wouldn't have an Excel basketball camp. I wouldn't have had the success I've had as a coach. I wouldn't have even been in a position where I could be a leader or servant leader because I didn't know anything about that until my life was touched by a man that the current knew where it was going. The man was sent to me. I think that's the other thing too, you know, is that we always had that, that trite saying that, you know, when the student is ready, the, the teacher will appear. I think there's truth to that. You know, when, when you know, you, you go, there, there's one consistent in life how you treat people you know, how you approach your day and how you treat people. So I know that every day I'm giving you my best effort. You know, I'm going to work. It might be four o'clock in the morning. It might be midnight, you know, whatever I got to do, I'm getting it done. I'm going to give you my best every single day. And the second thing, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to try to put you first. You know, I'm going to try to everything I do, you know, I'm going to try to be a better driver, you know, and not get angry when somebody cuts me off. Right. I'm going to mm-hmm. go slow and you could go ahead. I mean, what, what a great, Thing when you let somebody go first, instead of thinking I got to get, I got, I can't, I I can't be there. And so there's a, there's a, there's I think there's such a power in putting yourself second. Hmm. You know, there, there, there really is. I think it's a real power when you can put yourself second. You know, when you do a project and you say, well, you know what, maybe, maybe you did 99% of the work. To me, it's very powerful to say, you know what. He should get the credit. You know, he did a great job on this, you know. Yeah, what,
0: what's that power in putting yourself second?
1: It's it's a glow in yourself. I think, first of all, there's a security. Hmm. There's a security in there that, hey, I don't need the attention. I, I, the attention comes from me. The only thing relationship I'm going to have is me and my creator that, you know, I, I, I need to be comfortable with that and to the people that care. I remember um, um, in the movie uh, Rudy you know, I had a chance to be in that movie, right? I had some history in that. I was the quarterback in that game. And and I remember being approached and saying, you know, I'm going to make you famous. You know, hmm. I'm going to put in the movie and make you famous. And I said, I already am famous to anybody in my life that matters. Hmm. My wife and my children and my family and dear friends. That you know, uh, what, what what does that mean? You know, to be a to, to get that sort of the claim I, I don't want that I don't need that. I just need to be special to the people that I really care about and who care about me.
0: Hmm. what's what's required of of the servant leader? what's required of anybody in order to put themselves second?
1: I think you have to have a, a, a bigger picture of things. right you hmm. look at what we're going through right now. You know, you have an illness that has become politicized. It's, it's insane to me how we are sitting here and we're fighting over things. And it's like, whatever we got to do to make this go away, let's do it. <laughs> you know, and yet you have people that, that want to argue about it. And there's nothing to argue about other than let's take care of each other. You know, if I have to wear a mask to make you live, I'm OK with that. You know, I hear people that say, well, you know, the old people, it's, it's about them. Well, I don't matter. I'm old. Well, I'm in that category. I'd like to think I matter. But you know, I, I think, you know, what's really gone wrong. You know, I say this often about we know what works. Everybody know it works. Hmm. We just don't want to do it anymore. You know, we, for some reason, we don't want to talk about love. It's become corny to say, love thy neighbor, you know, and put myself second and make a sacrifice for you. You know, and this the pandemic we have now is a, is a real example of that, that how we, it's not about how to save it. It's about arguing who's right and who's wrong. You know, this is real simple. Just just do what you got to do. I got to be concerned about you. And so I think that's part of the problem here in this in, in our country right now. it's, it's uh, And I'm not being political on anybody's stretch of the imagination. I'm not talking about Democrats, Republicans, or independents or anybody. I'm just talking about this overall sense of in the old days, it was, how do we make us better? Hmm. You know, and now it's, what's in it for me? You know, what's in it for me? You know, I remember when when John F. Kennedy was elected, right, and his his inauguration speech, ask not, you know, what, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That always resonated with me. You know, and you talk about all those things that I think are really important and So I think, you know, how do you get that to become who you are? And I think if we look at, when you talk about evaluation, let's look around us and see what's happening. We're all mad at each other. Why? You know, we shouldn't be. Let's find a way to connect and get back to the the core of everything becomes love. And, And again, I think you elevate yourself when you put yourself lower. You know, when you're out there, I mean, to me, if you can give to a charity and support you know, whatever it is that you're interested in, it's, it's a positive thing. And um, who was it, um, I want to say it was Andrew Carnegie, you know, who made so much money, right, in his lifetime. And then his goal was to give it all away. What are you taking it for? What, what are people gonna remember about that? But you now you look around, it was Andrew Carnegie, by the way, because you look around, you see the Carnegie Institute, the Carnegie libraries are all over the place. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Andrew Carnegie lives. You know, and now I think you ask, if I asked my grandchildren, Andrew Carnegie's, they would have no idea, but Andrew Carnegie's had a huge influence on humanity. And how did he make that influence by becoming a business leader or because he gave it away? (laughs) As a business leader. He would would have died with billions and billions of dollars, but instead he he gave it away and he gave things that instill others. He probably would never, it doesn't get and probably will never get the credit that he probably deserves for all that, but who cares? We just know that kids read because they've gone to the Carnegie Libraries. They've, they've had opportunities to do things through the contributions that the man gave. So there's a life really well lived. I was just thinking about this the other day that driving home, I was thinking about the influencers in my life, my mother and my father. You know, my father passed away last year and it was... Mm, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. He was an amazing, amazing man, a volunteer fireman for almost 70 years. Wow. When he died, you know, they, the environment have a tradition of ringing the bell. It was, I never really understood, you know, the years, this is the years, right? When you hear the bell, you know, 68 times or whatever else it was, it was very compelling. But my dad really was the ultimate servant leader. And I was a factory worker. You know, my dad never made any money, but he gave a lot of it away. You know, he took people, he was the first guy to be there when somebody in town died. And so I got to see that and you know, I got to live that and watch my father and my mother. My mother's 91 years old, still makes sandwiches every Monday to feed homeless people in Newark, New Jersey, you know. My mother's amazing. You know, I had these people uh, in my life every every single day. But the reality of it is, is two generations from now, my great-great-grandchildren, they won't remember my parents.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I was thinking about my grandfather. My children don't know my, they never saw him. They don't know him. The story has faded over time. but. It hasn't faded because he's me, yeah. you know, and, and he becomes a part of them. And to me, that's the definition of servant leadership, right? Is what do you instill in others and what piece do they take away of you? So when Hmm. you're dead and gone, you're not missed. It just, it's just changed, right? Coach Alaco's not here telling me to do anything, but he still has his example that's in my heart and in my soul. Hmm. So, um, I think that's really, really important to understand that and to figure that out as you get older of all these these influencers in your life. And how do you pay that back? You know, you become that influencer. I mean, you're doing what you do and I'm doing what I do, probably because of the influence of someone. Right. Somebody got us excited. Everybody's got that person. I mean, I I had my mom, my dad my high school basketball coach, my high school football coach, Ara Parsigan, you know, I mean, I, I Stu Aberdeen, I, I can name you, you know, 10, my brother, Jerry, you know, 10, 12 people off the top of my head, you know, that really did shape who I am. And so, you know, I remember, I remember we used to tell Ara this, you know, coach Parsegan, we would, every time we won a state title, I would call coach Parsigan and say, you just won, you just won a state title coach. Mm. You know, I laughed and I said, no, 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 you did because I'm just the embodiment of you. You know, I've tried to be you. I've tried to lead the way you lead and coach the way you coached and different sport but the same concepts. And so um, it just becomes there's, you know, in, in a tumultuous time, there's peace and love mm. and there's peace in leadership, you know. And, um, and, and I think, again, as you get older, you start to realize this more and more as your time gets shorter. And you start to realize that it's all older, you know, a little bit older. When I close my eyes for the last time, I'm going to think of the people in my life that I hopefully have had some positive influence on, and, uh, and and smile about it. You know, my dad didn't. My dad, you know, when he passed away, I I never thought I would be able to survive that. You know, and and uh, I mean, there's kids that you know lose their parents when they're four years old. That's a real tragedy. My dad was 94. I mean, I. Hey, 94 years of wisdom that man had, and I had 67 years of You know, mm-hmm. of incredible wisdom uh, that I got that I that I got from him. But when he died, he knew, he knew how much he meant to all of us. You know, he knew the influence that he had, and I think he was very. He never said it. He wasn't that kind of a guy to go and tell you how wonderful you are. But we knew. I could just see in the twinkle in his eye. You know, and when, when something would happen, and it was positive, and I think at the core of everything, you know, he, he was the guy, you know, maybe I got the notoriety for winning some games, but it wasn't me. It was Aaron. It was coach Miller. It was coach, you know, Carpenter. It was my dad. It was my brother, Jerry. It was all these people that combined to help form the different elements of teaching that I've embraced.
0: You, you highlighted earlier coach that the core of everything becomes love. And just now I heard you touch on peace and love as well what does love look like for you and and what's the role of love in your leadership
1: well i would define love in, in a very basic element is that that willingness to do whatever it takes you know no greater love is he than lay his lay you know lay his life down for his friends when you think about that you know again you 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 look at people that go to war you know and die for their country and they get lost but yet you know, the, what greater love than a man have than to do that. Right. And so to me and love to me means I will do anything for you. You know, we mm. all say that word, I love you. Well, I think when you say, I love you, it's like, you know, I, I used to always say help side defense. We call it, we didn't, we never called it the help side defense. We called it the friendship stance mm. because in the friendship stance, I get to tell you how much I care about you because I'm going to cover for you. If you make a mistake, I got mm. you back. Hmm. People would say, I got, I got, you know, I got your help. I got your help. No, I got your back. I got your back. Yeah. You know, anything that ever goes wrong, I got your back. That's love. Hmm. When something goes wrong, I'm going to be there for you. You know, my Hmm. dad, When there's a death in town. My father was the first one there to go tell a widow, you know, that, hey, you need anything, you need your kids or whatever. So to me, love is really putting yourself second that, you know, I put your needs first. What can I do to make your life better? Mm -hmm. What can I do to make your experience better? So that's the way I look at love. You look at families that have love Well, the dad, you know, and the mom are out there doing whatever they can. They're working hard. They're providing kids with guidance and leadership and all that. Um, You know, I often say, you know, whenever one of my players just had a child and I wrote him a note and I said, your life just changed because every waking moment now becomes your consumption with you're consumed by, I worry about my kids. Hmm. My mother's 91. She reminds me to eat when I call her. I, think I know how to eat mom. I'm eating for a while, but you know, make sure you eat. So moms but, do best, right? Exactly. Right. And and they, and, and they worry about every little thing. And then I do the same thing. You know, I don't see my children as, you know, they're in their forties. I don't see it. I see them as, children, you know, that that need that guidance and and, and need that love. It never changes. But, you know, when you think about the power of love, I often tell the story of, and we hear this all the time, you know, a child will get run over by a car, you know, and and this 120 pound woman will go over and lift the car off that kid. And that's just not an uncommon occurrence. It happens a lot. And you look, well, how did she do that? How was she able to, lift a car that outweighs her, you know, and it's easy because that right there is the most important thing in the world to me, that child. And it just shows that power of love. When you are totally committed to something, you have strength beyond your imagination if you really believe in it. Hmm. And so that strength comes through love. And it's, again, something that we don't really talk about. And I think that's why, you know, you look at, Dynasties in sport, we used to see a lot more of them because they had core love, right? It was the program, it was the core that won. Now it's, you know, look at the professional leagues, right? You go and you get two other guys, or I want to play with that guy, and I make a phone call, hey, why don't you join me over here? And now we've got this franchise of three great players. What happens when those great players get old or they get hurt and it changes if you don't have a core, you know? And I think that's, I will say one thing that people will disagree with me on. I still contend that talent is great, but talent that doesn't feel these things and doesn't care. You're the most talented person in the world. If they don't box out in a backside rebound on game point, you ain't winning. I would rather have people that are totally committed to a cause and play and give their best energy and effort. And I think that's what wins is that belief and trust in each other. You can, you know, I'm not knocking talent, right? You can have the best talent in the world. You'll win while you have talent what happens when you don't have talent? You know, and I think that's what's driving people nowadays is go out and get the best talent they, they, they have. Instead of sometimes it's better to have a little less talent, but get that buy-in. I was on a national championship football team in 1973, right? at Notre Dame. And I can tell you that team was not incredibly talented, but I'll tell you, I've never seen a group of people that loved each other more than we did. I mean, we would do anything for our coach. Our coach would do anything for us and we would do anything for each other. I spoke at our 40th uh, national championship reunion and Dave Casper Hall of Fame tight end right Oakland Raiders he was the MC he said I'm going to call a player up from each class to talk about your experience at Notre Dame freshman year I think it was Al Hunter I think he was a pro I mean you know there were four guys three of them ended up playing pro football and me He calls me up to represent the junior class. And I walked up and I took the mic. I had 10 seconds to get my thoughts together. I wasn't expecting to speak. Why would I speak? I was the second string quarterback and holder, right? I get to the mic and I said, the fact that you would ask me to speak speaks volumes about who we were Hmm. because I was a holder and second string quarterback. But you thought I was important. And guess what? I thought I was important. I never considered transferring and going somewhere else. I wanted to help us win. I take pride to this day that I won a national championship. I would, What role did I have? I mean, I didn't have a significant role other than I was a really good teammate. I made people laugh. I was sort of a rah-rah motivated type of a guy. When I did play, I played okay you know, but it was, it was more, it was, I was, I felt like I was a very, very valuable player. I remember coach Parshigan calling me in after spring practice. I had a great spring between my, my senior year was the only year I got to rotate with the first team. And that makes a huge difference. Cause you know, when you're the second, third team playing against the ones, it's hard. Mm-hmm. But I was the first group for the first time and, and alternating. And I had a heck of a spring and I actually felt I played better than the incumbent quarterback, who was an amazing quarterback and a, Heisman candidate and an All-American. And and Coach Parsegan called me and said, you had a heck of a spring. You know, you performed well enough to win the starting job, but the job's not up for grabs. Mm -hmm. He comes to a national championship. He's a Heisman Trophy candidate. And trust me, he was a great quarterback, one of the greatest leaders and greatest guys I've known. And Ara told me that. He said, I want you to be the best backup quarterback in America. So if Tommy goes down, you step in. And I'll tell you, I felt good about that. Hmm. I didn't go home thinking I won the job. No, the job wasn't up for grabs. I understand that Tommy's a better quarterback than I was, but I really went home. I so I'm going to be the best backup quarterback in the country. And I'm going to be a part of this team and I'm going to figure it all out, you know? And uh, ironically, you know, we played in the uh, um, orange Bowl. We beat Alabama who was number one in the country and Tommy got hurt. <laughs> you know, Last couple series, I got to go in and finish up the game and a pressure. We had the ball like on the, 10-yard line, I got to go in, you know, you're thinking, don't fumble. In like fact, the fullback said to me, whatever you do, don't fumble. And I said to him, don't worry about me, worry about you. But I was scared to death that I, I may fumble. But think about that, though, that I would feel that special. And they would feel that special about me. And it was all because of Coach Barsegan and the servant leadership that he taught and the fact that we embraced it, and we probably didn't even know what the term was back right. then, right. but yet we all valued each other, and we all really thought our roles were very, very significant. And that gets back to my talk earlier about love. When that happens, you win. There were yeah. 10 teams much more talented than we were, but we had, a, we had something else that was much more important and took us to the highest level possible.
0: Uh, I'm hearing perhaps that, you know, to continue your metaphor that love is at the core, that love also keeps things together when things might splinter apart. Otherwise, love is what keeps it together. How might, you know, in, in the example that you shared at, at Notre Dame, how did Coach Parsigan foster love? And in what ways might you have cultivated love uh, with your teams at Northgate and De La Salle and in San Francisco?
1: Yeah, I, I think, I think you have to, it, it has to be more than just a game, right? It really has to be more than just a game. You really have to have a, a feeling like you're doing it for, for, to, you know, like in Notre Dame, right? We, you know, there was this huge following that Notre Dame. People lived and died by it. You had a religious component at that time that was, was important too, right? You're trying to do things the right way. You may not be, you know, everybody in the team wasn't Catholic, but yet they were they were joined together in faith. You know, we had a, a mass. You know, we had traditions that were very very important. I think that's a very important part of that too. Mm. You know, it was creating those traditions of love. You mm. know, so like every I was just telling uh, uh, the former police chief of San Francisco this that you know every Friday we looked forward to um, uh, we couldn't wait for practice because it was open practice. And the players from the past would come in. They've since eliminated that, that tradition, which is unfortunate, right? But on Fridays, you used to have this open practice. And we would be sitting there, you know, you're going through the walkthrough for the game. And you go, hey, there's Joe Theismann. You know, and my, Joe Theismann was my hero. You know, it's one of the reasons I went to Notre Dame, that I wanted to be Joe Theismann, right? And, and, he's like, and I remember Paul Horning coming in. Like, that's the golden boy, Paul Horning, right? And so you'd see those guys. And there was this sense of one day, I'm going to be that guy to Hmm. come. Somebody says, yeah, I remember him. He played football and basketball at Notre Dame or, you know, whatever else they might say about you, or you got a national championship ring on your finger. You know, uh, it was, it was really important. So he did that. He also did, you know, we had traditions. There was one that I really loved and it really, again, was, they were ahead of their time. There was this called the phantom. The phantom was every Thursday you'd come to your locker and there would be a motivational Maybe that's where I got my coach attitude thing from, Mm -hmm. Like There was a thing from the phantom and he'd write something about the opponent or make something up that got you all fired up and nobody ever knew who the phantom was, right? We had our suspicions. We think it was coach Tom Pagna, TP, and he was a great motivator. So it probably was him. We don't, uh, it was him. We do know that now, but we didn't know that, you know, you had that tradition. And on Fridays you had the pep rally and then you went to Moreau seminary right? We didn't go to the Marriott hotel, right? And Mm -hmm. five star hotel, we slept in a cot, right? Then you got up in the morning and you, and you went to to mass with the team, right? Whether you're Catholic or not, we all just went to mass and, and you got these little, um, a medal, they gave you a medal, holy medal after, before every game. I have every one of them. I saved every single one of them. And so, you know, you had these traditions that really um, were about love. And it was also about being a role model. You know, you felt special, you know, when you walk through campus and you and Ara taught us to be that, you know, you stop and you talk to fans like, you know, you may be the most important person in the world, you know, to an 80 year old person who gets to meet the Notre Dame quarterback, you know. And so that responsibility to me was always important. And Ara really did teach that, that we have a role. It's more than just a game. We've got to be something and do things the right way.
0: As you move towards wrapping up perhaps uh, here today, Coach, what, what do you hope listeners walk away with? from our conversation here today?
1: Well, it's a challenged, you know, challenge that we can make this better. We can make Hmm. our country better. We can make the world better. And it it starts, you know, we always say at Excel, right? Change the world one player at a time. You know, you can change the world one solitary act of kindness, you know, make people feel like they're the most important person in the world because they deserve to feel that right? How do you motivate a person and, and get them excited, you know, um, and, and be there for people when they need you. That's love. You know, you put your personal feelings aside. And once again, Adam, you know, I'm not, you know, I am not the same coach I was when I started. I I think one of the last games I ever coached was probably my finest moment. Hmm. And one of our players, a great young player, he had one of the greatest years. I mean, I had some really good players, you know, but and, and this kid was a five foot, nine inch, Vince Romeo was his name. He was five foot, nine inches tall. The kid's scoring 24 a game. We never had anybody score like that, right? And we had some some good players. This little five, nine guy that just shot the ball. He was playing with such amazing confidence. And we played uh, one of our rivals and we were up um, three points and they scored to cut it to three. And they called a timeout and we, I wanted to get the ball in his hands right? Because he doesn't miss, they're going to foul him, you know, and there's only three seconds to go, whatever it was. And, and I'm going to get the ball in his hand. So I diagrammed the play to get him the ball. He gets the ball, he gets fouled. He goes to the foul line. He looks at me and he gives me a little nod, like I got this. And yeah, we all know you got it. You don't miss, right? He misses the front end of a one-on-one. And, um, we had this press on, in the event we did miss just to slow the game down well he like i don't know if he thought he had two shots but or he was like shocked he looked at me and they threw the ball over his head to he a kid who banked it in from 60 feet you know and we go into overtime we lost the game that kid was devastated devastated and uh that night you know, i tried to explain to him wasn't you you know you didn't cost us a game we had 39 minutes 59 seconds to ice the game you know and we didn't get it done or 31 minutes 59 seconds and that night, I'm home at 1130 at night. I get a phone call from one of my assistants. He said, Vince is down at the church shooting free throws. Hmm. And he's crying. He's said, I get out of bed and I go down and go see Vince. And and uh, he's crying. He's very distraught. And I said, hey, Vince, first of all, God works in funny ways. And you were chosen to miss that free throw because you're the only kid on this team tough enough to miss that free throw and bounce back. Hmm. You know, and you're going to bounce back. And you're going to have an opportunity to to fix this. Trust me. You just can't lose your faith. You can't lose your confidence. You know, you're know you going to be fine. And you did not cost us that game. I said, I've always told you guys that, you know, pressure is not really something you should fear. Pressure gives you a chance to be a legend. Hmm. Right? So you make that game-winning shot, you get to be a hero. People never forget. I can still tell you, we won three state titles, right? Every kid made free throws win those games right they're they're legends they got to be heroes if they missed we wouldn't be sitting here going hey he missed that free throw to cost us a game no 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 we had 31 minutes 59 seconds to win the game right it's just a chance to be be the man right so I told him that and uh, he went on the rest of the year and we got to play that same team in the section championship game We were down about nine with a minute and 20 to go. We never played as well as we had played after that loss. Quite frankly, we struggled a little bit. He struggled a little bit. Hmm. Minute minute and nine seconds to go or so. We're down nine points. We mount this unbelievable comeback sparked by him. He steals the ball. Uh, We are down one. We cut it to one. He steals the ball with like one second to go and gets fouled. Wow and he's got a double bonus, and we're down one. Game over. He looks at me, gives me a little pound of the chest, and this is what we waited for. You know, we're all excited. He misses the first. Hmm. Doesn't hit the rim on the second. Hmm. He falls to the ground. Thousands of people storm the court to celebrate this win, this upset, right? And I see this kid on the floor crying and it was the first time in my life i didn't care that we lost the game i couldn't have cared less all i cared about was that boy hmm. and how awful he felt right and i ran out in the court and i tried to pick him up and i couldn't really lift him he was so heavy right and i finally got him up and he was crying i choked i choked i said you didn't choke you wouldn't have even have been there if you didn't do what you did the last minute you're fine and he, kept, he kept crying i said Vince, i love you hmm. you know and that you, you, it wasn't you. And I kept, I, and I remember everybody's rocking him. And I kind of walked him off the crickets because people are celebrating around us. And before you know it, people saw what was going on and the place almost got quiet. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was over there with my arms around it and I was just rocking them saying, I love you so much. Tell us how much I love you and, and you're fine. And, um, and I got to tell you, Adam, was my greatest moment of coaching. It really was, you know, it really was to be able to, Disassociate yourself from the feelings of a loss but not winning a title. You know, and the disappointment, it did not matter. All that matters, that boy needed help, right? And that kid went on to play college basketball. I he never made a three at the buzzer to win a game. He sent me the video Coach, I finally got it done. I said, you always, <laughs> done. you always got it done. And he actually gave up his his college career to go and help a friend that needed assistance. And I don't know that he ever would have understood that that compassion or the empathy if he didn't experience it. So now you have, did we lose that game or did we win? Hmm. Learned a lot from it. And he picked somebody else up in their hour of need and he became a servant leader. Right. And as coaches, did we lose? No, we didn't lose. We just created a great servant leader that went out and did something to change the world and make it and elevate somebody else and make them feel good when they needed help the most. So I think that's, The lesson out there for coaches, define your, you know, define what it is of who you are, what you're about, listen, care for kids, guide them, understand that every person you meet is the most important person in the world to someone. And you've got to, you have an obligation to motivate them and develop them and inspire them to become the best version so that when it's your time to go, a kid sits at that dinner table and remembers who you were, And the influence that you may have had and wherever you are, your star will twinkle just a little bit brighter because you made a difference.
0: Awesome. If you had to use one word, one phrase to describe servant leadership, what might that word or phrase be, Coach?
1: Uh, Probably empowerment. You know, to empower others to feel good. About, hmm. about themselves, right? To empower them to make good choices, to empower them to achieve their potential, to empower them to embrace the beauty of love. Um, I think you really have to have to elevate them and let them feel great about what they've done. And I think at the core of that, like I said earlier, is making them feel important that they're yeah. the, and then give them the tools to get them there. You know, and, and that is, um, you know, coaching attitude and and letting them see how important things are and, and try to guide them in, in, in a world that's craving for great examples of things. They're there. They're every day. You know, we don't need home runs. We need you to go outside and see a lady struggling with her with her groceries. Go help her. You know, go help her. And now you're becoming a great help side defender and you're, you're using the friendship stance and, and you're making your your team's stronger. You know, I, I often say that life is a lot like defense. Always be willing to give help, but never expect it.
0: Hmm. One of the beautiful threads throughout our conversation here today for me, coach, and one of the powers I think that you've highlighted of servant leadership are the ripples across time. Even if the, the technical aspect of the relationship is over, the, the, the lasting impacts. Of the relationship, continue to move forward, Coach. I thank you for for moving all of your insights um, of servant leadership forward with us here today, and continuing these these ripples across time, sharing your love with us. Um, and I know that what's said here uh, today will continue to move forward beyond just our conversation. And I thank you so much.
1: Well, Adam, it's been a pleasure to be here. You know, I've done several of these kinds of things, but I got to tell you, it makes it really special to see a young boy that, you know, when I remember you were a young boy, you know, competing and to watch you grow into the man that you have become and to see the path that you've taken. And, and, you know, as we discuss these topics, a lot of it is you, I mean, you know, the path that you took in the college world and the coaching and, and now to pivot and to do other things. And I do think that we're all called to do what we're supposed to be doing, you know, at, at the time of our lives and you're, you're doing what you should be doing. And I'm just very proud to me to sit here and and, and see that, you know, if I had any little tiny bit of influence in your life, you make me very proud. So it's good to be here with you.
0: Thank you so much for being here. And I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. Next week's episode features a conversation with Brent Scott, assistant men's basketball coach at Virginia Commonwealth University. Coach Scott is currently in his fourth season with the Rams, and his tenure features an at-large NCAA tournament berth. Prior to his time at VCU, Coach Scott also previously served as an assistant coach at LSU, TCU, and Rice University. Subscribe now, share with others, and I'd love to hear from you. Rate and comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or reach out with questions, reflections, and feedback via social media. You can find me on Twitter at AdamGearLock or Instagram at Adam.GearLock or email me at Adam at adamgcoaching.com. I'm so excited to continue to explore servant leadership and share love in basketball with you. Thank you.